Engaging conversation on the most urgent problem of our day and what you can do about it. Now, the End Abortion Podcast by Priests for Life. Hello, and welcome to Pro-Life Primetime News. Today is Friday, September 2nd. I'm Teresa Watson. And I'm Leslie Palma. Tonight, I will bring you a report that will seem like something from a bad science fiction movie. Leslie and I will discuss new lines of attack against pro-lifers with our guest, Brad Mattis. And I'll be telling you about the upcoming National Day of Remembrance. I'll be telling you how the Federal Trade Commission is finally cracking down on geolocation data sales, although the reason is a bit skewed. And I'll have abortion news from around the country. Stay tuned for an update on all the political news from this week. Join me and Brian Kemper, Youth Outreach Director for Priests for Life, as he shares his emotional testimony as the last abortion business in Dayton, Ohio closes. We will end the show this week with a heartwarming story from the author of the book, Anne Among Us. Rob Guinan joins us and shares how he found healing after his wife's miscarriage. Israeli scientists have created the world's first synthetic embryos, while scientists in the United Kingdom have developed mouse embryos using stem cells instead of sperm and eggs. The online journal SciTech Daily reports that the mouse embryos can form a brain, a beating heart, and the foundations of all the other organs of the body. It represents a new avenue for recreating the first stages of life, the journal said, of the British mouse embryos. The development was first reported in the journal Nature, where Magdalena Zernica Getz, a professor at Cambridge University, said, it's just unbelievable that we've got this far. This has been the dream of our community for years and a major focus of our work for a decade, and finally we've done it. The scientists hope to develop synthetic human organs for transplantation and gain a greater understanding of why some embryos fail and some continue on to a healthy pregnancy. The synthetic embryos created in Israel also used stem cells from mice and then were nurtured in an artificial womb. They developed beating hearts, flowing blood, intestinal tracts, and cranial folds in the brain. Quote, this experiment has huge implications, according to Bernard Siegel of the World Stem Cell Summit. One wonders what mammal could be next in line. But for Michael Cook, editor of the pro-life online journal BioEdge, there's no question the mammal next in line will be us. He cites the ambitions of a company called Renewal Bio and its founder, Jacob Hanna. Hanna believes there will be a huge market for products derived from synthetic human embryos. But what Cook envisions is something much darker, strip mining human embryos that have been custom made for Renewal Bio's clients. Cook is calling for immediate regulation of this new and terrifying technology, but given its international scope, scientists have little to fear from lawmakers. We should expect these science fiction to reality developments to continue. In recent weeks, we have reported on the continuing violence in our nation directed towards pregnancy centers and pro-life organizations due to the demise of Roe v. Wade. Recently, a group of 600 extremists, including abortionists, sent a letter to the media asking it to censor all pro-life voices when reporting on abortion. In Cincinnati, Ohio, pro-abortion activists tried to derail a pro-life fundraising event. In New York, extreme abortion advocate Governor Kathy Hochul referred to pro-lifers as Neanderthals and signed a bill that initiated an investigation of pro-life pregnancy centers. In a recent article, Brad Mattis, president of Life Issues Institute, said, the abortion industry and their allies lack a persuasive argument to, to sustain abortion on demand until birth. So they are resorting to violent and illegal tactics that resemble a child's tantrum on steroids. We have Brad Mattis here with us tonight. Hi, Brad. Welcome. Well, hi. It's really nice to be with you guys. Well, thank you. Brad, would you just uh, initially just tell us a little bit about your work at Life Issues Institute? 
Certainly. Uh, many watching the program may be familiar with the name of Dr. Jack Wilkie. Well, uh, he and I co-founded Life Issues Institute in 1991, dedicated solely to the educational aspects of the pro-life movement. So our materials have been translated into over 30 different languages. Uh, our footprint circumvents the globe, and we strive to provide pro-life educational resources for the public at large and uh, the pro-life movement, of course. Uh, two of the big programs we have is... Uh, uh, a daily radio commentary heard on over 1,300 outlets. And we did a TV half-hour program that garnered three regional Emmy Awards for pro-life programming, if you can imagine that. That's fantastic. <laughs> so you're not only a pro-life activist, but as you said, you're also a, a radio host and you hosted and produced the, this TV program. So as a media person, what was your reaction to the abortion extremists putting pressure on the media to censor pro-life voices? Well, first of all, uh, normal, in normal circumstances, we would have just ignored it. But in this day and age of, of censoring the pro-life message on uh, social media, we have to pay attention to it. And the, the cardinal sin for anybody that's providing media is to allow others to, to uh, demand or, or take over that content. That is an absolute no-no in the media industry. And uh, we are really concerned that uh, Google and the others will cave to pressure as we have seen them do very recently, uh, tagging uh, pregnancy help centers throughout the nation, uh, making sure that women who might be looking for an abortion and go there are aware that they are a pro-life organization up front. Well, Brad, it seems like the right to freedom of speech has been removed, but just for pro-lifers, what do you think? Oh, absolutely spot on right. We have seen time after time after time, Life Issues Institute included, we were doing a two-phase online media purchase leading up to Dobbs, and everything was going great. 10,000 people a day were watching our videos. And then the leaked document came out and Google throttled the program. We went from 10,000 to 2,500 a day. Wow. And Brad, there was an event in Cincinnati recently where activists did all they could to block it. How did, how did that go down? <laughs> and, and this is a testimony to the tenacity of pro-lifers. Um, yes, Pregnancy Center East, the most effective a pregnancy center in Cincinnati, where uh, my wife and I lived for 28 years, was holding their summer social called Boots and Bottles. And they were holding it at a brewery, and then they had a food truck there to serve the guests. Just a fun thing. Well, pro-abortion extremists harassed the brewery, not only one, but multiple breweries, and forcing Pregnancy Center East to move their location four times just a week prior to the event. And they, en they ended up having to move across the state line to Kentucky, uh, across the river. And uh, there's an organization called, uh, or a company called Boone County Distilling Company that with a three-day notice took the bold stand of hosting that program. And then the caterer couldn't come across the, the river because he didn't have a license for Kentucky. So Harmon's Barbecue stepped in to pro provide the food. And I would encourage people to uh, reach out to Boone County Distilling Company and Harmon's Barbecue and let them know how much you appreciate their bold stand for life. 
Absolutely. Wow, that what a great story. Well, Brad, um, recently uh, Governor Hochul from New York referred to us pro-lifers as Neanderthals. If you had an opportunity to chat with her and other politicians uh, that feel that way, what would you say? Well, first of all, uh, I've been called so much worse than a Neanderthal that that didn't even scratch the surface of our thick skin in the pro-life movement. Uh, what I would say to her is you need to concentrate and investigate the pregnancy centers that have been firebombed in your state instead of passing legislation that uh, begins an investigation of all these centers. It is not the centers that need investigating, but the domestic terrorist attacks that do. She signed legislation that gave coverage, blanket coverage for abortionists so that they're protected from malpractice suits. No matter how badly they botch that abortion, women now are stripped of their right for recourse if they have been uh, the victim of malpractice. And, and Brad, as you're aware, since Roe v. Wade was overturned, abortion activists have flooded news outlets with lies and half-truths about state abortion bans restricting women's health care, for example, an, in the case of an ectopic pregnancy. But the American Association of Pro-Life Obstetricians and Gynecologists is working hard to make known that pro-life laws ban killing, not medical care. Can you comment on that situation? Oh, yes, that's a good question. I'm glad you asked it. When the other side doesn't have an argument to sell abortion on demand throughout pregnancy, they resort to lies and attacks and attempts to keep us silent. Well, we talked about the silence. Now we're talking about the, the tax. It's fear mongering at its worst. If a woman is suffering from an ectopic pregnancy, a life threatening situation, or is having a miscarriage, she can go to the emergency room and be treated without question, um, even though the laws may protect unborn babies. They are trying to scare women into thinking that they will not have treatment at such a critical time. Treating ectopic pregnancies and miscarriages are not abortions and Every person in emergency rooms knows that's not the case. They're not classified as such and would treat these women. Wow. Well, thank you so much, Brad, uh, for all your insights. It's always a delight chatting with you. And in closing, what do you feel that at this point the pro-life movement needs the most? Well, we need prayer. That's one thing. We also need, um, we need support. For those of you out there watching the program, support this ministry and others, Life Issues Institute, so that we can keep our doors open and uh, educate the people to the truth about abortion. You know, we are doing this for the babies who have been pulled limb from limb in the abortion chambers. So being called a Neanderthal is nothing compared to what they go through. And we do it for the mothers and fathers who have been marred physically and psychologically from an abortion in their past. There's hope and healing through pro-life groups. So if you're one of those, come see us. And we do it for future generations of unborn children that God has a perfect plan for every single one that they can be born and that that plan can see fruition. Great. Well, for more information on Life Issues Institute, please visit, visit lifeissues.org. Thank you so much, Brad. Thanks, Brad. Thank you. On September 14, 2013, three national pro-life groups announced the first National Day of Remembrance for aborted children. It was meant to honor the unborn at the grave sites where they are buried. 
The observance was marked by simultaneous memorial services in cities from coast to coast. The effort was coordinated by Citizens for a Pro-Life Society, Priests for Life, and the Pro-Life Pro Action League. Many of these buried babies, having been killed by abortion, were retrieved from the actual trash dumpsters of abortion clinics or pathology labs where their bodies were shipped. Some graves have hundreds of bodies buried in them. Each year since 2013, the event is held on the second Saturday in September. The 10th annual National Day of Remembrance for Aborted Children will be held on September 10th, 2022. You may ask why visit the grave sites of the aborted unborn? Father Frank Pavone, National Director of Priests for Life, said abortion is not an abstract issue. Having a memorial service where these babies are buried reminds us that abortion is not merely about beliefs, but about bloodshed, not just about viewpoints, but victims. Eric Scheidler, the executive director of the Pro-Life Action League stated, it's sobering to realize that grave markers for the unborn victims of abortion list only a date of burial. They have no birthdays because they were never allowed to be born. Scheidler continued, we can list no date of death because those who killed them discarded their bodies like garbage, but they are not garbage to us. They are our brothers and sisters. That's why we buried them. And that's why we visit their graves to mourn for them and testify to their humanity. Janet Marana, Executive Director of Priests for Life, had an opportunity to chat with Eric Scheidler. Here is, an, is Eric explaining how you can get involved in the National Day of Remembrance. Well, the website it contains all the information anyone needs in order to find out where a National Day of Remembrance uh, memorial service is taking place. But even though it's only a few days away, it's not too late to join this project by hosting one of our memorial services. If you go to the website, you look at our locations and find that there wasn't, there isn't a, a service scheduled near you, you will probably find a memorial location where you could hold a service. Even if it's just you and a group of your pro-life friends on this day, better that than that you, know, you stay home on a day when millions of pro-lifers are going out and observing this important day of observation and remembrance. So yeah, well, we're I, showing I right now, Eric, we are that's ready the... to help every step of the way. And you know right. what, even if you're not able to do that this year, maybe this year you simply go to that memorial site with three friends and you pray a rosary next year, you can expand it because we have all the tools you need to do that. It's a scalable event. Right. So right now we're showing everyone the map. And all those little blue signs show where there's events, correct? That's the blue what that dots is. are, are going to be your are going to be the memorial locations where there's a memorial marker. The red dots right. are going to be the places where they're where these children are actually buried. But in order to find out if a memorial service is happening near you, you have to check and see if there's one being held there. Um, we have burial places where we have not recruited leaders yet. We'd really love to get all of our burial places covered, and we have many memorial locations as well, where we could hold services if there were a leader willing to step forward. And again, we help every step of the way. We explain right. exactly how to one run these things. And I know it's just a few days left, but we've had some of our most effective leaders have come on for these types of events just a few days before, gotten excited, had success that first year, even if on a modest level, and then come back the next year and do so much more. So it's never too late to get started with your involvement. Um, but, you know, 
maybe simply attending one of these events is the thing that God's calling you to do. Those locations are available for you. Now that Roe v. Wade has been overturned, it is crucial that we continue to mourn the millions of lives lost to abortion and repent of the national sin of abortion, even as we begin the project of extending legal protection to unborn children in every state we can. Be sure to visit nationaldayofremembrance.org and get involved. It's no secret that when we gave into the allure of smartphones, we gave up all semblance of privacy. Through geolocation, our phones reveal with pinpoint accuracy where we are at any given moment, and the sale of geolocation data has become big business. Through geolocation, battered women who flee to shelters have been found by their abusers. Clergy who have been using hookup apps have been outed in the media. Stalkers have found the home addresses of their victims. Now the federal government has decided to get involved in the geolocation issue. The Federal Trade Commission has sued the Idaho-based data broker Kicheva after abortion advocates claimed new state laws restricting abortion could lead to abortion seekers' location histories being used against them as evidence of wrongdoing. According to the FTC's complaint, the data may be used to identify consumers who have visited an abortion clinic and, as a result, may have had or contemplated having an abortion. The federal agency claims that in the data the company included in a free sample, it was possible to track a woman's phone from an abortion business to her home. The FTC claims the data may also be used to identify medical professionals who perform abortions. The sale of geolocation data has been a gross violation of privacy for years, and cracking down on it is a good idea. But the fact that government action only came in the wake of the overturning of Roe v. Wade says a lot about the skewed priorities of the current administration. California is preparing to spend $20 million in taxpayer money to bring women from other states to its abortion businesses. Previously, Governor Gavin Newsom restricted the state's abortion practical support fund to in-state residents, but now he's making good on a promise to turn his state into an abortion sanctuary. The California Family Council, a pro-life nonprofit, opposes the move. Its president, Jonathan Keller, says the idea that the most pressing use of state funds would be to pay for people from red states to fly here to have abortions on the California taxpayer dime is really just a travesty. But California is not the only municipality preparing to make its taxpayers fund out-of-state abortions. Oregon will spend up to $15 million to bring women into the state. On Wednesday, New Mexico Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham signed an executive order calling for $10 million in taxpayer funds to go toward the construction of a new killing center in the southern part of the state, and directed the state health department to look into the possibility of providing chemical abortion pills in the public health clinics it administers. The Nashville Metro City Council said it would consider eliminating city jobs in order to give a $500,000 grant to Planned Parenthood to fund abortion travel. The plan would include $150,000 for gas cards and other travel benefits to allow pregnant women in Nashville to travel out of state for abortion after Tennessee last week enacted a law banning most abortions. Despite that Tennessee law, a Memphis abortion business that killed 4,000 babies last year is staying open by concentrating on its other services, including a birthing center. Jennifer Pepper, the CEO of Choices, said she's trying to avoid having to lay off her staff, so she's having some of them trained as birthing assistants. The birthing center opened in 2020 and last year assisted in 90 births. But Pepper hasn't suddenly become pro-life. She's also opening a new killing center in abortion-friendly Illinois. In Indiana this week, Attorney General Todd Rotica succeeded in keeping a law on the books requiring doctors, hospitals, and abortion businesses to report all complications from surgical and chemical abortions. Planned Parenthood has been trying to overturn the law for years. 
Studies have shown that at-home chemical abortions, which make up more than half of all abortions in the U.S., have significantly higher complication rates. Planned Parenthood, the ACLU, and other abortion sellers also have sued to keep Indiana's near-total abortion ban from being enacted September 15th. On the international scene, the United Nations Committee on the Elimination of Racial Discrimination has complained to the Biden administration that overturning Roe v. Wade and subsequent abortion bans in many states will take a heavy toll on women of color. The committee wants federal and state governments to guarantee abortion access to racial minorities and women with low incomes, and to make it easy for women to travel to states where abortion is not banned. No response yet from the White House. In a related matter, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, speaking on Women's Equality Day last Friday, said restricting abortion for women of color is sinful. In fact, she said it three times. During a reproductive roundtable at the University of California, San Francisco's Mission Bay campus, the California Democrat, who likes to call herself a devout Catholic, said, and I quote, the fact that this is such an assault on women of color and women, lower income families, is just sinful. It's sinful. It's wrong that they would be able to say to women what they think women should be doing with their lives and their bodies. But it's sinful, the injustice of it all. Finally, the South Carolina House passed a bill to ban all abortions except those caused by rape and incest and those necessary to save the life of the mother. The Senate is expected to vote next week. And now we turn to political news. Michigan's elections board on Wednesday rejected a voter initiative for the November ballot that would enshrine abortion rights in the state constitution. The four-member board of state canvassers deadlocked along partisan lines with two of the Republican members declining to certify the measure, which requires three votes. The Michigan Reproductive Freedom for All campaign, which gathered signatures for the ballot measure, said it will appeal to the board's vote to the Supreme Court of the state. In Alaska, former Governor Sarah Palin has lost her bid to fill the remaining term of Representative Don Young, a Republican who died in March. Democrat Mary Peltola, who won more than 50% of the vote in Alaska's ranked choice election. Voters went to the poll August 16th, but the results were just announced on Wednesday. Peltola will have to run again in November when she will face Republicans Palin and Nick Begich. Stacey Abrams, the high-profile Democratic candidate for governor in Georgia, didn't always support abortion rights. The daughter of two retired United Methodist pastors grew up opposing abortion because of her religious beliefs. However, Abrahams had a change of heart, for the worse in our opinion, and became pro-abortion. At a recent gathering, Abrams sat in the middle of six women who shared their personal stories on miscarriage, afraid that now they wouldn't be able to get the necessary health care if they had a miscarriage today. Discussions like this are putting fear in women as the left continue to spread lies, saying anti-abortion laws will prevent women from getting necessary health care after a miscarriage or an ectopic pregnancy. Martha Zola with the Georgia Life Alliance said, the left is just trying to scare people. She said this in response to a concern that women would be investigated for murder after a miscarriage. There are 67 days until the midterm elections. Many of the processes and laws that govern voting, the options voters have, and the deadlines for various stages of the process vary from state to state. It's essential that you as voters inform yourselves of how elections work in the state where you are registered. 
Visit USA.gov election office to find the election website for your state. As for voter registration, you can utilize the National Voter Registration Form available on our website, priestforlife.org states. You will also find an election calendar by state. Make sure you are registered for, to vote in the state you currently live in. If you're unsure as to the status of your voter registration, please visit checkyourvoterregistration.com. These midterm elections are critical to win back control of the House and Senate. For information on candidates in all of your elections, please go to iVoterGuide.com. This guide will enable you to see which candidates are pro-life, as well as where they stand on all critical issues. Reported last week on pro-life primetime news, the two parties are running neck and neck in generic ballot polling. Yet, if we zero in on the House, the overall terrain is still quite favorable to the GOP. Even though the GOP lost its slight edge since June, its continued edge comes down to factors such as geography, since Democrats are concentrated in metropolitan areas, redistricting, which has given Republicans more favorable seats, and history, which shows that the president's party almost always loses House seats in midterms. But there is one more factor that could really help Republicans this fall. More Democrats than Republicans are leaving the House, either retiring or running for another office. Overall, 31 Democrats are departing, compared with just 18 Republicans. House members from the president's party tend to leave Congress in greater number because the midterms usually go poorly for their side. But Republicans need to flip just four seats to gain majority in the House. And it's possible GOP victories and seats left behind by outgoing Democrats will account for at least that many. And in closing, we invite you to please join us in a nine-week prayer campaign beginning on Tuesday, August 6th, running through Election Day, Tuesday, August, excuse me, November 8th, by praying our prayer for our nation as we prepare to elect our leaders. This prayer can be found at electionprayer.org, where you can find an English and a Spanish version. Please be sure to join us in this novena. And that's political news in a nutshell. Dayton is a city of 140,000 people in Southwest Ohio. Once it was home to three very busy abortion mills, but now it's down to just one, and that one is closing within the next several weeks. Priest for Life Youth Outreach Director Brian Kemper has a long history with that particular abortion business, so we've invited him on to tell us about that history and what it means that this place is closing. Welcome, Brian. Well, hey, Leslie, how are we doing today? We're very well. So it's a great time in Dayton. Uh, yeah, you know, I bet it is. It, it's amazing. Leslie, I came uh, here in the 90s as part of a big week-long rescue event uh, where I was arrested several times for rescuing, for putting myself in front of the abortion mill door. And, um, you know, not knowing that I'd ever live in this area, but I ended up with uh, federal injunctions against me, uh, one of them by Janet Reno stating that I couldn't be within so many feet of the abortion mill here in Dayton. And when I moved here, it was the last abortion mill left. And I've been here for 15 years. Anytime I go there, I have to stand across the street away. But we have just found out that finally, the last abortion mill in Dayton, Ohio, owned by abortionist Haskell, will be closing on September 15th of this year. So it's a huge celebration here in the Dayton area. I bet it is, congratulations. So 
I guess your injunction just goes away when that happens. I mean, is there anything formal that? The, yeah, that's that it for that. Like, uh, it's one of the last. It's the last abortion mill on the on the in in America or on the planet that I'm not allowed to be within so many feet of, because I I, I did the horrible act of kneeling down and praying in front of the door and refusing to leave. Um, and it, it's just it's exciting to me. I, I hope to God we never have another abortion mill in this area. I don't believe we will. Um, but I would be able to go in sidewalk council and pray there, which I, I can't do now. So we're excited to see this abortion mill close and for Dayton to be an abortion-free city here in America. Is, is there anything planned on the, the day after it closes or anything? There is some talk of some celebration. There was about to be a 40 Days for Life event that would be uh, going on here. So that will be changing. I will be at that celebration and I'll make sure that there's plenty of pictures uh, for you guys to show. You you mentioned the abortionist Martin Haskell. He's the one we associate his name with partial birth abortion. I think he gave a demonstration, or he gave a he talked about it at a National Abortion Federation conference. Is he still involved in that particular clinic? He is. This is these are he he owns these two abortion mills here in in Dayton and and one in Indianapolis, both which will be closing. Both closing. That's fantastic. All right. Well. Good work. Well done. <laughs> you got you got Thank it you. closed. <laughs> right. I appreciate it. Hey, it's 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 the work of organizations like Priests for Life and, and all of the organizations here in Ohio that have fought so hard. Uh, we have a group of amazing sidewalk counselors that are there every single day that abortion mill is open. And now they'll be able to move on to something else. Fantastic. All right. Well, thanks so much for joining us, Brian. Thank you very much. It's always a pleasure to be on. Miscarriage is a tragedy that so many people misunderstand. They are not quite sure how to console a friend or relative who has suffered this loss. While there are no magic formulas, there is one fundamental truth that needs to stay front and center. A miscarriage is the loss of a child who is just as real and has just as much value as any other child of any age. A woman who has had a miscarriage is a parent who has lost a child as is the father of the child as well. In a society that continues to have a legal and cultural blind spot for the unborn, many suffer from the illusion that miscarriage doesn't grieve a parent as much as the loss of a, well, a real child. And that is precisely what hurts so much. We can never console someone in grief if we imply, even remotely, that the person they lost wasn't real. Dr. Byron Calhoun, president of the American Association of Pro-Life OBGYNs, has observed that prior to 1970, the loss of a child before or during birth was often treated in medical literature as a non-event, but that now there is a growing awareness of the grief associated with such a loss. In fact, Dr. Calhoun has developed a hospice program for unborn children. As the medical community advances in sensitivity and understanding of these points, so must we all. Our love, our compassion, our sharing in the grief of such losses can bring healing to the parents who have suffered miscarriage. The naming of these children who have died is one significant way of acknowledging their reality. The counting of these children matters too, so that if a parent is asked how many children he or she has, the child who died before birth is counted as one of them. I have with me tonight Rob Guinan, author of Anne Among Us, First Fear, Then Miscarriage, A Catholic Father's Diary. Father Frank Pavone, National Director of Priests for Life, endorsed his book in 2014, saying, 
a father's agony over the miscarriage of his daughter becomes a real crisis of faith. Few works has ever been composed to focus on the effects of a miscarriage on the father of a child. Anne Among Us will advance your appreciation of the bond shared between a father and his unborn child. Welcome, Rob. Thank you so much for joining me. Oh, so, so glad you had me. Thanks. Yeah. Well, Rob, tell us a little bit about your wife's pregnancy and then unfortunate miscarriage. You know, I'm not the hero in this story. The other two women are. I, it was the worst possible time that this could happen. My mother had leukemia. Uh, my wife, came, you know, we're there at the hospital every day. My wife on the way home one night said, um, you know, I, th I think I'm late. And, you know, we didn't even have the money to get the, the pregnancy test at Walgreens. And it was just a bad time economically and all the other stuff that was going on. Um, I got annoyed with her at first. Can you imagine that being part of the whole situation? I got annoyed with her and it was not my best day on this planet. Uh, uh, God was trying to give us a great gift. And I was saying, you know, not now, God, you know, maybe another time. Uh, Sharon was more open. We eventually got the courage to say, okay, I was still lukewarm. And then after 60 days, she started noticing some spotting and it was not a worry at first, but then the doctor said that a miscarriage was imminent. And, um, you know, what amazed me about this, this woman, my wife is even though she heard that from the doctor, she took prenatal vitamins up to the very end. And, um, and then in the end, we saw instead the euphoria of the delivery room, what we really saw was kind of the vulgarity of nature because it's not what we expected. It's not, you know, it just wasn't where we intended to see this end up, you know, and such is Providence, you know. Sure. Well, amongst the grief um, that you were both feeling, uh, what enabled you then to emerge from this grief and begin writing Anne Among Us? Well, I've always had good relationships with priests. And one priest told me that the letter of Paul to Philemon was a masterpiece of persuasion. He said that um, he was talking about how Paul was asked to take back somebody who had stolen from him, uh, from Philemon and bring him back as a brother instead. And I was putting that question to myself and I was saying to myself, well, in verse nine, Paul is appealing to my love. And then in verse 21, he's appealing to my obligation. And I'm thinking, take my pick, which one is it going to be? And um, I would just say that this girl never, um, she never stole anything except my heart in the end. And she really did get that heart in the end. Um, I was just going to say that um, she was in every way with us. She was at our dinner table. She went to mass with us during those 60 days. She went on rides with us. She absolutely felt the stirring of her brothers and sisters two brothers and sister around her. And she was very much involved in the rhythms of our everyday life in our family. And um, just one thing that has to be mentioned here is that being a writer myself and having some success as a writer, you know, I got a little bit of ego there and I wrote a good story and I shared it with my family at dinner time and, I, and our prayer time. And they were really moved actually, especially my nine-year-old son. And I, I stuck the story in a dresser drawer and I thought, well, that's it. Let's move on. But did you know that this nine-year-old boy 
never forgot her. He prayed for her every single night all the way through high school. And wow. he witnessed to me, again, I'm not the hero in this story. So, Wow. Well, um, how has this book been used by fathers who've experienced miscarriages? I understand churches have used it. Um, it's been quite uh, extensive uh, help with a lot of different people in a lot of different countries as well, right? Yeah, it's it's um, there's an intrigue with it, but I'm not sure that it's not still a very brand new subject. I mean, even I was acting a little bit separate from Sharon and all this stuff while she was going through the the real shared experience with Anne. Um, I will say that it's it's still a new subject. Um, but speaking of fathers, Father Pavone was the first one to spotlight this story. He was the first one to notice its importance out there. He's, I, he must have seen it as a story that was not told. And um, he doesn't know this, and maybe he'll find this out today, that um, he, um, Father, um, the Monsignor in Sandy Hook um, sent me two letters on this story, and he began to use it to help grieving families in Sandy Hook, Connecticut. So it's had a secondary effect out there as well. These these children are still with us. And um, that was a good lesson for me, I think, in all of this. Sure. Well, thank you for sharing that. And as a society, Rob, I, I think that our tendency is still to focus only on the mother, as if the loss only affects her. Uh, well, in reality, as we've been discussing a little bit, um, it does affect the father and other family members as well. Do you agree? This is the best catechism class I ever had, um, without a doubt. It's the best catechism class I ever had. Um, I think fathers should be involved, but, you know, we have a role to play even afterwards. Um, I had to reconcile with this girl afterwards. I really did, because my prayers for her were a little bit lukewarm and kind of scared me a little bit because I always said I was pro-life. But... Um, I, she never left my mind. And then a few years later at Christmas, I wanted to give her something that would be the equivalent of a bracelet, a, a, a gold bracelet from Tiffany's. So I had this strong compulsion to offer a mass for her and make gifts to pro-life communities for her. She had to be recognized. She did some important things. She, she, she made her mark here. In fact, how many unborn children do you know that engage a professional writer to write about her? That's unheard of. And um, I had a mass said for her. And um, kind of what came from that is this verse in Luke chapter 20. All are alive to him. And at the altar and at this reconciliation, I feel like I reconnected with her in a significant way. Um, it was very moving. It's the most moving experience of my life. Yeah. Well, Rob, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with me tonight. And uh, where can people go to buy the book, Anne Among Us? Well, it's on Amazon and Kindle. And, um, you know, appreciate that that notification there. Sure, absolutely. So if you know uh, someone who has uh, suffered a, a miscarriage, uh, this might be a great uh, resource for them. So uh, please uh, go and buy Anne Among Us. And again, uh, Rob, thank you again. And uh, we appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us on Pro-Life Primetime News, produced at Priests for Life headquarters in Titusville, Florida. 
We hope you will join us every Friday at 9 p.m. Eastern Time. Also this weekend, we hope you will tune into the new season of Defending Life, Priests for Life pro-life show on EWTN that will begin its 35th season tomorrow, Saturday, September 3rd at 11 p.m. Eastern Time, and will be rebroadcast Monday at 3.30 a.m. Eastern Time. For the first time, the show is produced right here in our studio. Priest for Life Executive Director Janet Morana and Father David Begany, pastor of Holy Family Church in Baytown, Texas, are the co-hosts. We hope you will support this show, Defending Life, and all of our broadcasts, including Just Ask Janet, Oceans of Mercy, Pro-Life is the New Punk Rock, and Primetime Live with Father Frank by making a donation to ProLifeGift.org. These donations help fund all of our work here at Priests for Life. If you have an idea for a story or would like to expose something in the abortion industry, please email us at media at priestsforlife.org. I'm Leslie Palma, Communications Director. And I'm Teresa Watson, Executive Manager. Remember, life is the only choice. This has been the End Abortion Podcast. To learn more, to help end abortion, and to connect with us on social media, visit endabortion.net.